This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the hottest new podcast out there, Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney. Now before we get started on today's episode, I want to put in a little bit of a plug for the last two weeks. I was actually out of town, but I had a couple episodes drop that I think are really good, really interesting. They're on the Syrian Civil War. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at them, please do. It was a two-part series. The first one was on some of the religious background that broke down some of the different denominations of Islam and how they factor into the different sides in the Syrian Civil War and some of the allies that have joined in from other countries. And then the second part was more of a political look. And I looked at certain countries like Russia and the United States and why are they involved. And I think this was a really interesting two-part series. And it's a really important one, too, as we deal with some of the end results of the of this conflict. Because you have the refugees, there's humanitarian crises taking place. And we're going on like year eight of this civil war that has been so devastating for so many people. So if you haven't had a chance to go back and check out those two episodes, I would highly recommend it. And I'd really appreciate it. Now, the week before that two-part series began, I actually did a different episode that was a spotlight on a specific people group, the Kurds, and actually got some really good feedback on it. It seemed to do really well. People really liked it. So I thought I'd do something similar this week, except we're looking at a different people group in a different part of the world, and that would be the Rohingya people. Now, the Rohingya people, or sometimes called the Rohingya people, are, again, a stateless group, but they reside in a country called Myanmar. You may have heard of it as Burma. It used to be called Burma before it changed its name. But the Rohingya people have been in the news of late because this year, August, was the one-year anniversary of what Myanmar called a clearance operation, but more or less ended up being a military offensive that forced a bunch of Rohingya people to flee their villages, to flee their towns, turned turn them into refugees fleeing into the neighboring country of Bangladesh. Thousands of them were killed, essentially an ethnic cleansing of a sort, mass rape, mass murder, we're talking babies, kids grabbed from their parents' arms, thrown into burning buildings, people were drowned, villages were razed to the ground. I mean, this is almost textbook ethnic cleansing, and as I said, this took place about a year ago, and so the Rohingya people have been kind of in this state of flux ever since. There's still a lot of struggles going on there. There's still some of these murders and brutality and violence taking place, but I thought today we could do a little bit of a look on who these people are, where they're from, and kind of what the deal is. But first, let's back up, just do a little bit of demographics of this group. So the Rohingya people number somewhere between one and a half to two million people, most of those currently are in Bangladesh. Uh, before this ethnic cleansing, before the 2016-2017 crisis that took place there, there were close to a million, though, living in Myanmar. A large, large chunk of those, probably 60%, have fled the country into Bangladesh, which is why Bangladesh is now the number one. But you also do find them in some other parts of the world. There's probably a half million or so living in Saudi Arabia, some in Pakistan, Malaysia, the UAE, India. There's actually about 12,000 or so living in the United States. But more or less, they are considered to be indigenous to this Myanmar region, kind of on the western side of it. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Rohingya heritage, 
I do know there is some debate about this. Uh, the Rohingya themselves maintain they are indigenous to this area. They count their heritage back over a thousand years. They claim influence from the Arabs, uh, the Portuguese who were in the area for a little while, and some others. And they basically believe that they are descended from kind of a pre-colonial period of a group called the Arakans, A-R-A-K-A-N. Now, historically, this area was kind of an independent state of, of sorts, kind of between the Indian subcontinent and the rest of Southeast Asia. That said, the official position of Myanmar differs, and this is where you get some of the animosity here. Uh, despite the Rohingya kind of showing that they have been here for a long, long time and they claim to be indigenous, the Myanmar government has basically come out and said that they are not considered a national indigenous race to that country. They believe they are in, uh, illegal immigrants, or at least claim they're illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Now, the Myanmar government does recognize, I believe, eight different indigenous races within their country, but they have stopped short of claiming the Rohingya people are one of those. And because of this, the Myanmar government doesn't actually use the term Rohingya. They refer to the community as the Bengalis, in reference to Bangladesh, as well as the region of Bengal in South Asia. Now, this is currently an area that kind of spans multiple countries across Bangladesh and India. They speak a separate language, kind of Indo-European of the Bengali language. And the Myanmar government claims that the Rohingya people are just essentially a part of this group and therefore are immigrants in their country and they're, and they're illegally. And so despite the Rohingya people basically being able to train, uh, trace their heritage back all the way to around the 8th century or so, the law in Myanmar does not recognize them, which means that they've been restricted in a variety of areas, including things like education by the state, certain types of jobs and civil and civil service, uh, restricting their freedom of movement throughout the country, and a lot of other various legal aspects. Now, the Rohingya people essentially want to be able to claim self-determination, autonomy. They, they want to be able to, to live their lives there. But there's been this long history of discrimination and persecution of the Rohingya community uh, that borders on apartheid, uh, it's kind of akin to crimes against humanity in certain cases. There's been genocide claims. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, this is borderline ethnic cleansing as well. And this discrimination and persecution goes back at least for minimum decades and has resulted in several different refugee crises. Uh, back in 78, there was a pretty big uh, refugee crisis where re uh, Rohingya refugees fled into Bangladesh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 at that time. There was another refugee crisis in the early 90s. Uh, the military junta that was in power in at the time, Burma, started targeting the Rohingya people. And you saw, again, about 200, maybe 250,000 refugees flee Myanmar, go into Bangladesh as well. And then this current crisis has been going on at least since 2012. There were a handful of riots that took place between two different groups that kind of live in this same area, the Rohingyas, which are a Muslim group, and then the Rakhines, which are a Buddhist group. And so you saw these uh, riots take place, break out into fighting. Dozens of people were, were killed, uh, dozens more injured. And again, a, a neighborhood of 100,000 or more people had to flee. 2015 rolls around and you've got another refugee crisis here. The Rohingyas were again being persecuted. And to escape that, we again had thousands upon thousands flee from Myanmar, actually fleeing from Bangladesh as well. 
Uh, they were not particularly well accepted into the Bangladesh community. And so they were fleeing to countries like Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. Uh, you actually, you may have heard of them back in, at the time, the international media was referencing them as the boat people because they were fleeing in these very rickety wooden boats across some pretty rough waters of the Strait of Malacca. And so you had tens of thousands of refugees that were fleeing uh, during this couple month period in 2015. And then just in this last year or so, you had the, the most recent conflict that resulted in these kind of military crackdowns. And this has really crossed over into massive human rights violations at the hands of some of these military or security forces, including mass killings, gang rapes, arson, just raising villages to the ground, complete massacres of different villages and communities, men, women, and children. And then in August of 2017 is what I kind of referenced at the beginning of this. You had what the military was, was calling a clearance operation against the Rohingya in this quadrant of the country. And essentially, they just swept through the region, killing thousands upon thousands of Rohingya people, brutalizing, raping, destroying so many more. And we had this mass, mass exodus of probably in the neighborhood of 600,000 Rohingya people leaving Myanmar, fleeing into Bangladesh while their villages were burning to the ground behind them. Now, the Myanmar government and the security forces claim this is only a response to attacks made on them. And there are a handful of very small terrorist-style attacks by Rohingya extremists on kind of Burma police and that, that sort of thing. We have seen a few of those over the years. There was one in 2016, kind of late 2016, where some Burma border police were attacked. We're talking, you know, machetes, handmade slingshots, those sorts of things, a handful of firearms, and they killed in the neighborhood of nine or ten border officers. We also saw a few soldiers killed a couple days later. And so you do see a few of these kind of isolated incidents where extremists from this Rohingya community did uh, reach out and attack some of the Burma or Myanmar security forces. Now, most of this can be blamed on a group that's uh, kind of an insurgent group that was mostly active in the 80s and 90s called the Rohingya Solidarity Organization, or the RSO. Uh, there's another group called the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, A-R-S-A. Uh, both of these groups have been blamed at various times for these type of attacks. Uh, they are fairly small groups. A lot of people actually believe the RSO has been essentially defunct since the late 90s. Uh, there may be a handful of insurgents still around. Uh, ARSA probably has at most maybe 500 to 600 people. So these are small groups, not a whole lot of activity, but there have been a few attacks. And so the Myanmar government has used these attacks as justification for their actions. Now, Obviously, a handful of attacks by a small terrorist organization does not re reflect the broader population of the Rohingya people, and the response has been way, way over the top by the Myanmar military. Again, I mentioned this phrase many times, and I do not mention it lightly. 
ethnic cleansing, essentially, and they are going through and just utterly massacring these people to the point where it could probably be legally considered genocide under international law. And a lot of this gets back to the idea that the Myanmar military is really targeting this group due to ethnicity and religion. So let's back up a little bit and talk about who the Rohingya people are, kind of how they identify. Like the Kurds from a few weeks ago, the Rohingya are one of the largest people groups in the world that does not have their own country. And in fact, it was estimated a couple years ago that as many as one in seven people in the world that is considered stateless comes from this Rohingya people group. And as I mentioned before, kind of because they're not considered citizens, they're not considered one of these official indigenous people groups, they're not really protected by the government against some of these ideas of discrimination. And this carries over into religious freedom as well. Uh, the majority of the Rohingya are Muslim. This is a blend of both Sunni and Shia. There is a minority that is Hindu as well. Both of these faiths do face some discrimination and persecution from the Buddhist populations in that area as well. And kind of compounding some of this too is a language barrier that they speak. Uh, the Rohingyas do not speak Burmese, which is the official language uh, of Myanmar. So they face a lot of problems when they try to integrate as well. There is a Rohingya language. It's kind of a, a branch off of the greater Indo-European language family. Very similar to some of the other languages in the region, in particular the Chittagonian language, which is spoken in Bangladesh, uh, Bengali as well. But because they don't speak the larger Burmese language of Myanmar, this has led to a lot of problems with some of their integration tactics, as I mentioned earlier, and it kind of drives, or at least is used as some sort of a justification. It makes it difficult for uh, them to, to mesh well with the majority population in Myanmar. And kind of compounded on top of all of this too, because a lot of the discrimination they face, they have a lot of problems within their community, including things like poor health. Uh, they have one of the higher child mortality rates in the world, much, much larger than the rest of Myanmar. And when you factor in a lot of the human right, rights violations and violence they face too, the mortality rate as a whole in, the, in this community is quite high. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about this refugee thing because the Rohingya people have been really described in multiple cases as being some of the world's most persecuted people. Uh, they're considered the least or one of the world's least wanted minorities because the Bangladesh population doesn't really want them there either. And so they kind of exist on this demarcation line between the two countries, neither of which really want to claim them. They kind of want, want to do their own thing, but aren't really allowed to do that either. And quite possibly the worst part of all of this is, too, I would bet most of you listening here have never even heard of the Rohingya or don't know much about them because it's one of the world's probably most underreported stories that's been going on. And like I said, this has been going on for at least a year. The, the worst part of it is. And the persecution has been going back decades. You know, we've had multiple refugee crises from the same people group. And yet most people in the West have never even heard of them. In Myanmar, obviously, I've mentioned they've been deprived of a lot of rights. They can't really move freely. They frequently have land that gets confiscated. Uh, they're subjected to forced labor at times. Sometimes the Rohingya men will be picked up from their work one day a week or something like that and forced to work on various government projects. They're not supposed to have more than two children, although that law doesn't really get enforced a whole lot. And they're frequently exposed to physical violence and sexual violence. And so, so many members of this community have really been displaced to Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, the government there does help them a little bit. They get some aid from the United, uh, the United Nations 
in terms of food and places to live and those types of things. But this has put a big strain on Bangladesh as well. And Bangladesh has actually started to reduce the amount of support it gives to the Rohingya. Uh, they, they have been helping and that's great, but it's put a big strain on their economy. And so they're trying to um, dis dissuade the Rohingya from continuing to pour across the border. So they're reducing the amount of support that they give to this people group. The Rohingyas frequently get maligned in the news, particularly in this part of the world, largely by Myanmar as being violent extremists. So it makes it hard for the Rohingya to really gain much sympathy outside of this region as well. Thanks to some efforts, though, from groups like the UN, the US Department of State, uh, the government of Malaysia has gotten involved with this, uh, Amnesty International, which is a big human rights group, they have started to gain a little bit more recognition worldwide because of some of these crackdowns and gross human rights violations. And in fact, uh, there's the, the de facto kind of head of government in, in Myanmar, who is a uh, woman by the name of Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm sure I probably butchered that, uh, and I apologize. But uh, she's the leader of Burma, or Myanmar. Uh, she's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1991. But she has been widely criticized recently because uh, she's basically failed to act in response to some of this persecution that's going on. She actually won her Nobel Peace Prize on this kind of commitment to nonviolence. She's considered, uh, I think by Time Magazine, she was called a ch child of Gandhi. Uh, so she has this background of being very anti-violence. But in her current role as kind of a state counselor in, in Myanmar, you know, she has basically refused to accept that the military there, which is not under her control, uh, has committed massacres. And she's refused to kind of speak out against this. And it's resulted in a lot of criticism going her way. Some critics have actually called for uh, her Nobel Prize to be revoked entirely because of her silence over this issue. And in fact, she's actually lost a couple other awards that she has won over this exact issue as well. In 2017, she was granted the honor of the freedom of the city, which is something from the Oxford City Council, and that was withdrawn. Uh, saying that she was no longer worthy of that honor. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum had given her the Elie Wiesel Award back in 2012, but they have taken that away because they cited her failure to condemn and stop the military's brutal campaign. That's a direct quote. Great Britain's International Development Committee has announced that they have found her complicit in the crimes against the Rohingyas, and I believe she's actually lost a couple other awards as well. And so there is this kind of push for her to lose the Nobel Peace Prize that she gained you know, 30 years ago in addition to this. To defend herself, she has basically come out and said that the Rohingya situation is one she cannot take sides on because there's violence on both sides. Uh, she does not believe necessarily that the Rohingya are citizens of, of Myanmar, so they can't be regarded as, as citizens. And at one point back in, I believe, 2012 or 13, she actually denied that ethnic cleansing was taking place at all, insisting that you know that there was just tension there, it was a climate of fear, and things had gotten spun out of control. But criticism from other Nobel Prize laureates like Malala, um, Desmond Tutu, and some others have really kind of sparked a lot more interest back in, in her and her worthiness of some of these awards. And so... While this crisis has been going on for decades and a lot of times people have been ignoring it, thanks to some efforts from various human rights organizations, certain media outlets, and some of these other Nobel laureates have really focused and shown more of a spotlight on this. And we're starting to see consequences for what's taking place there, at least on the political front. Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said that if the political price of ascension to the highest office in Myanmar is your silence, again addressing uh, Suu Kyi, 
the price is surely too steep. It is incongruous for a symbol of righteousness to lead such a country. And so we're starting to see some political consequences come down the pipeline. And it's quite possible that you may see some major changes here going forward, but they are fighting an uphill battle here. And I would encourage you as you look at other parts of the world that may get a little bit more media attention, like Syria, Nicaragua, uh, some other parts of Africa in particular with some of the terrorist groups there, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, to just remember that there are some of these groups out there that don't get the same media attention for one reason or another. I'm not placing any blame on the media specifically here. Sometimes you have to make decisions and there are a lot of other things that need attention too. You know, Syria is a very important one to focus on as I've touched on them in previous episodes. But just understand that there are some of these cases that are taking place in the world that maybe don't get the same attention. And that's partly why I want to do this podcast in the first place, to really focus the spotlight on some of these less covered entities and less covered situations that really seem to go unnoticed at times. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and end the episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about a different people group in the world, one that is under a pretty immense amount of persecution right now. If you haven't had a chance to go back and check out my past episodes on the Kurds or on the Syrian civil war, I would encourage you to go back and do that. I think those are really interesting episodes. If you'd like to get in touch with me and continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. My username there is Justin R underscore Kinney. You can also find me on Facebook under my fiction author name, J. Robert Kinney. Definitely answer any messages I get in either location. If you'd like to support me or this podcast in any way or advertise on this podcast, please send me a message and I would love to talk with you about that possibility. And I look forward to talking with you guys on the next episode of Nutshell Politics. But until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics and I'm out in three, two, one. Yeah.